Amen. Well, turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 10. We're working our way through the book of Romans, and we've made our way into the 10th chapter. I guess that means this is the 10th week we've been on the, the, um, uh, the, this book. We've been covering a chapter a week. And uh, if you have um, been with us, you may recall that we've uh, made mention of the fact that Paul takes a detour after chapter 8. Uh, prior to chapter 8, he talks about the progression of sin, the ungodliness uh, or godlessness of man and his uh, uh, being worthy of uh, death and the wrath of God upon him. But then he starts talking about Jesus and tar- starts talking about what, how God has made a way for us through faith in the name of Jesus and, and, uh, and so forth. He goes into chapter 7 and 8 telling us about the struggle that we still have as Christians, as believers, new creatures in Christ with our flesh, but how to overcome our flesh through, by, through letting the power of the Holy Spirit dominate us. But after he starts talking about those things, or gets in the middle of it, really, in, uh, in chapter 8, he, uh, he takes a sideline. He's going to pick it back up in chapter 12 and continue talking about what we have in Christ and, and how to uh, let the life of God uh, manifest in our earthly lives here uh, on this planet. But he takes a, a, a detour in chapters nine. 8, 9, and 10, I'm sorry, 9, 10, and 11, where he starts talking about how God dealt with the Jews. And um, I think uh, to put some things in in context might be helpful. You recall that by uh, the information that we have in the book of Acts and the, uh, the information that Paul gives us in his writings, letters to the churches, um, that the Jews were primarily... Um, well, they were the primary source of persecution against Paul and his ministry. The Jews that were scattered throughout the Middle East and uh, Asia and even into Europe. Um, stories had been told, rumors, many things true, many things not, not true about Paul. And so therefore the Jews were kind of laying in wait for him wherever he went. And, uh, and in most cases, according to the book of Acts and the record we have there, um, Paul would have great success with the Gentiles uh, sometimes he'd have success with the Gentiles and then the Jews would stir up trouble. Sometimes the Jews would reject it and then he'd go to the Gentiles and then he'd have great success. But time and time and time again, the Gentiles received the word of God gladly where the Jews rejected it. And as a result, Paul, uh, I, I think I said it a little bit earlier that Paul kind of takes a side journey or a sideline in the ninth, 10th, and 11th chapters, but it's really not a sideline because he's trying to explain how to the Jews uh, that were scattered abroad throughout the earth. He's trying to explain how God set aside the law for faith in Jesus and how the Gentiles can have the righteousness of God just like he's trying to get them to receive, but most of them are rejecting. He says in uh, chapter 9 that he'd be willing to give up his salvation for the Jews. He's trying to counteract the idea and the, the stories, the rumors, and the, uh, the slanderous lies that are being told about him that he's just a disgruntled Jew trying to gain approval from the Gentiles. And he turns that on its head and says, I'd be willing to give up my salvation if the Jews would be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth of what I'm preaching. But they won't. They refuse. In chapter 10, he starts off by telling them, uh, reaffirming his desire for Israel to be saved. So we'll pick up in verse 1. He said, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. So Paul is praying for Israel. Some people say, if taken this verse of Scripture and said, Well, see, the Bible says that all of Israel will be saved. There are some other verses in there that Paul tells about the God's dealing with Israel down the road and says all of Israel is going to be saved, so there's no need to pray for them. Well, Paul apparently didn't know that because he's praying for them. 
People that are unsaved, whether they're Jews or Gentiles, need Jesus. And so they're worthy of our prayers for them to come into the kingdom of God. Amen? So he says, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved, which means they're not now. For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. Folks, one of the greatest things that you need to understand as a Christian is that zeal is not to be mistaken for knowledge of God. A lot of people get excited, but they don't know anything about God. There's a lot of people that are trying to tell churches and pastors what they ought to do now that the Supreme Court has ruled in the ways that they have and uh, ruled on the gay marriage issue and so forth. And there's a lot of people out there that have great zeal for God, great zeal for the country, great zeal for the patriotic return of the America of yesteryear and so forth, but they don't have any knowledge of God. Be careful of somebody that's got the answers if they don't know God because God's the only one that is the source of the answers. And on top of that, be careful and be aware of anybody that says they've got all the answers because nobody has. So he says, I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. Now think about what Paul is saying when he writes this. He, had, he was in the same place at one time. He had a zeal for God, and as a result, he was persecuting the church. Nobody could say he wasn't zealous when he was putting Christians in prison and having them killed. He was zealous, but he didn't know beans about God. But he thought he did. He thought he was one of the ones of God's chosen people, not just of the nation of Israel, but the elite among the priesthood. And he thought that put him in a position to know God, but it didn't, did it? So he knows what he's talking about when he's talking about zeal without knowledge. He's exactly, they're there in exactly the same place he used to be. So he goes on and says, for they being ignorant, here's why they were without knowledge, here's what they're ignorant of. They being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. Now again, Paul is speaking first person. He knows exactly who he's talking to and what he's talking about because this is where he used to be. And notice what he says. He says they're ignorant of God's righteousness. Now what does that mean? Does that mean they're ignorant of that God is righteous? No, they're ignorant of God's righteousness apart from the law. Because they were trying to establish or gain or attain some sort of righteousness on their own through their actions. Now, folks, I'm going to tell you something here, and I may say it several times tonight because I really, really want you to get this. The Old Testament was all about obeying God. Everything was about obey the law and blessings will come, disobey the law and curses will come, right? Well, does God ever change? Well, if God was about obedience in the Old Testament, then what's God about now? Is it possible that he's not still about obedience? Of course not. God never changes. So if he was about obeying him in the Old Testament, God's still about obeying him because he's still God. But what is obeying God under the new covenant? Under the old covenant, we know what that was. Keeping the laws, keeping the ordinances, keeping the statutes of God, what you do. Puts you in good standing with God. Or at least salves your conscience to make you think you're in good standing with God. What's obedience under the new covenant? To believe. To believe in Jesus. And that is the thing that hung the Jews up then. It's the thing that that hangs the Jews up now. Because obedience to God is to believe in Jesus. Not to believe in Jesus and do good works. God's not against good works, but they don't cut any eyes with him as far as relationship is concerned because it's not about what you do except obeying which under the new covenant 
is defined as believing in Jesus. So this is what Paul is talking about. He said, for they being ignorant, here's their lack of knowledge, they being ignorant of God's righteousness. What does that mean? Righteousness through faith in Jesus. They're ignorant of the fact that the law could not bring righteousness. They know that they haven't attained to it. They know that they're under condemnation even while they're trying to do something and do what they can to attain their own righteousness or their own means or or way of, of gaining righteousness. But they're ignorant of the fact that God's righteousness is not just a character attribute of himself. God is the justifier of the ungodly to all of those who believe in Jesus. That's what they're ignorant of. That's what Paul was ignorant of. That's why when Jesus appeared to him on the road to Damascus and said, Why do you persecute me? Uh, uh, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? He knows exactly what's going on here. He knows this is God. This is the only be God that's appearing in this manner and showing this form of power. So he said, Who art thou? He said, I'm Jesus, whom you persecute. That turned his world upside down. Because he thought he was doing God a favor trying to destroy Christianity. The Jews in Paul's day, during the days of his earthly ministry, were trying to destroy Christianity, thinking they were doing God a favor. There are still groups out there trying to destroy Christians, thinking they're doing God a favor. So he said they're ignorant of God's righteousness, meaning his means of righteousness. The law never could produce it. If if Paul says in another place, if righteousness could have been of the law, then God would have made it so. But it couldn't. So what are they ignorant of? They're ignorant of God's means of righteousness or means of obtaining righteousness, which is only through faith in Jesus. And they go about to establish their own righteousness, which can't do, and have not submitted themselves under the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus. That's their problem. Folks, that's the problem for the world. That's the problem of the unsaved. They're going about trying to do their own thing, whether it has to do with gaining a place with God or just making their own way in the world. And they have not submitted themselves unto God's means of righteousness, which is only through faith in Jesus. Now, folks, I keep saying this, and I want to keep saying it. It's not believe Jesus and. It's believe Jesus. See, we try to put ourselves under the same rule of law, even though it's not the law of Moses. We try to put ourselves, or I say try to put ourselves, we're conditioned by the enemy and by religion to put ourselves under this burden of, well, if we pray enough, then God will be happy with us. Oh, we believe in Jesus, so we better pray. Oh, we believe in Jesus, so we better read the word enough. Folks, I read the word a bunch, but it's because I love the word. I'm not trying to gain anything with God. I'm not closer to God because I read his word than you if you don't. And my fellowship with the Lord may be enhanced because of the knowledge that the word brings. But God doesn't love me more because I read the word and you don't. If that's the case. It's not believe in Jesus and. It's believe in Jesus. Now there's a lot of good things we can do. I love to pray. And I do. And it brings blessing into my life. I love to read the word. And I do. Because it brings blessing into my life. But that's not a means of attaining righteousness. None of those things makes me more righteous than if I just believe in Jesus and don't pray and don't read the word. Now, here's the, here's the, the fine line on all this stuff. You've almost got to preach it with the, with the idea or with the um, uh, implying that you don't have to do anything to be righteous except believe in Jesus. And then some people will take that and run with it and say, well, praise the Lord. Forget that prayer plan. 
Forget that reading the Bible plan. I believe in Jesus, so I'm righteous, and you're exactly right. You're missing out on some blessings that come from reading the word, putting the word in your heart. You're, coming, you're missing out on some blessings that come from praying. But none of those things make you righteous. But the devil's right there telling you, if you're not doing enough, then God's not going to be happy with you. How can God not be happy with you if you have obeyed him and believed in Jesus? It's believing in Jesus that's the key, folks. Are you out there? So he says, they have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God, for Christ is the end of the law. What does that mean? The end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believes. That means he killed the law. He destroyed your relationship with the law. Now, that's not just the law of Moses. He's writing to the Jews, of course, and so he knows that they're going to be talking about and thinking the law of Moses as he writes this. But that's any law. That's any rule. That's any regulation. That's any condemnation that the enemy might bring to you that you're not praying enough or reading the Bible enough or doing whatever enough. Jesus has made an end of all law. He destroyed your relationship with any and everything that there is of law, concerning law. Any rules, every rule, any regulation, every regulation. Jesus made an end of it. Jesus finished work on the cross, made an end of it. So it is simply faith in Jesus and, that, and faith alone. That's it. That's all there is. Now, when you realize that and start walking in that knowledge, it makes it easier to do things because you love God, not because you're trying to gain something with God. And that was a lot of what Paul was talking about in chapter 8. He goes on in verse 5. He says, For Moses describes the righteousness which is of the law, that the man that which doeth those things shall live by them. That's Leviticus 8.15, I think it is. Now, uh, let me make a couple of comments here. Paul, in talking about God's dealing with Israel, is going to quote the Old Testament, a lot of it Moses, but the Old Testament scriptures, specifically in these three chapters, 9, 10, and 11, 30 times. Now, if we don't know the Old Testament like the Jews knew the Old Testament, then we might miss some of it and might miss the significance of what he's quoting and why he's quoting it. But remember, Paul has the same training as the high priest. He's been trained as a rabbi. He's been trained as, a, as a, to be eligible to be a priest, even the high priest, if, if his number fell, so to speak. And so Paul is very well schooled in the Old Testament. And as a result, he knows that the Jews who are also schooled, maybe not, the, maybe not the, the average guy doesn't have the same training, but who have also been taught the Old Testament and the law of Moses, law and the prophets and so forth, he knows that they should have access to information that would prove God's plan of righteousness through faith in Jesus. And so he's going to nail them to the wall with it. So he starts off and he says, even Moses said, describes the righteousness which is of the law. This is not the righteousness of faith in Jesus. But the righteousness of the law is they, that the man which doeth those things shall live by them. He knows that every Jew knows it's impossible to keep the law. And so if you're responsible for living by them, you know you're unrighteous according to the law. Where does that leave you? An unrighteous man. But then he's going to talk about Moses saying something else. He's going to turn it around to Jesus. Notice in verse, uh, verse 6. But the righteousness which is of faith speaketh on this wise. I'm going to read to you from uh, Deuteronomy chapter 30 because this is where Paul um, 
takes this from. I had it up here and I lost it, so let me get it back. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 11 through 14. I'm going to read it to you from the Old Testament and show you how Paul adjusts it for teaching on uh, uh, Jesus and what we have in him. For this commandment, Deuteronomy 30, verse 11, this is part of Moses' farewell address to the Israelites. He's about to die and about to go off the scene, which is significant about concerning the things that he says. He says, For this commandment which I command thee this day, it is not hidden from thee, neither is it far off. Now compare this to what you see in, in uh, Romans 10, verses 6 and 7 and 8. Notice the difference. For this commandment which I command thee this day, it is not hidden far from thee, neither is it afar off. It is not in heaven that thou shouldest say, Who shall go up for us to heaven and bring it unto us, that we may hear it and do it? Neither is it beyond the sea that thou shouldest say, Who shall go over the sea and bring it unto us, that we may hear it and do it? But the word is very nigh unto thee in thy mouth and in thy heart, that thou mayest do it. Quite a difference, huh? Now, why is there a difference? Well, let's put it in context. As I said, Moses has led the children of Israel out of Egypt through the Red Sea, signs and wonders, ten plagues in Egypt and so forth, brought forth with a mighty hand of deliverance, God's delivering power, fed the manna in the wilderness by the hand of God, struck the rock and brought forth rivers that supplied millions of people and and, uh, sustained them and so forth. He's seen them uh, delivered by the hand of God from their enemies when they would obey for 40 years in the wilderness, even though they disobeyed God and, and refused to take the promised land like God originally planned. And after these 40 years, they've seen God manifest himself before them to protect Moses, to speak with Moses, to direct them. He's, Moses has been the one that gave them the law. He went up into the mountain that burned with fire and brimstone. Smoke and blackness and lightnings and everything that was so terrible that that even if an animal touched the mountain, it was supposed to be killed. They've seen Moses endure and survive things that no human being should ever be expected to survive. And now Paul uses Moses' uh, statements and sayings in the Old Testament to substitute the law for faith in Jesus. Here's the, the attitude of the people. They know Moses is going off the scene. He's telling them that. I'm not the one going to take you into the promised land. Joshua's going to do that. So he's telling them he's going off the scene. So after 40 years, and this is a new generation. The old generation has perished in the wilderness. The new generation is thinking, well, wait a minute. We've seen Moses do some pretty hairy things. Moses went up into the mountain and talked face to face with God in a place where no human thing, not even an animal, could even touch. Yet he walked in the middle of that. So who's going to go up into the mountain? into heaven as it were and bring us back the words of God that's what Moses means who's going to go when he says who's going to go to heaven and bring it down to us he's saying I know what you're thinking you're wanting to see signs and wonders remember when Jesus was there so many times people said show us a sign Moses is trying to guard against that with the people through his instruction so he says and don't think that the answer is going to be across the sea now the sea he was talking about may be the Red Sea he may be talking about returning to, uh, return to Egypt like their fathers did, wanted to do 40 years earlier after they ran into some trouble. Or he may be just talking about any sea or figuratively speaking of the sea, some other teacher somewhere that can come give us new words. Moses substitutes that for Jesus going into the heart of the earth. 
the end result is very simply this, and that's in verse 14, Deuteronomy 30, verse 14. But the word is very nigh thee. In thy mouth and in thy heart that thou mayest do it. In other words, Moses is saying, don't look for somebody else to go up into the mountain and bring you down new tables of stone. Don't look for some teacher to come from some other place, something that you don't know of, somebody that you've never heard of. It's not going to be some new thing, some foreign uh, activity or some foreign individual. What you need is not another sign from God. What you need is to take the word that I've left you. In other words, your answer is the word. Now, folks, think about when Moses said that. Moses said that in the Old Testament. That's not a new a new brand new, fresh and brand new New Testament concept. This has always been the way that it's been with God. And that is simply this, that the word is the answer. The word is the answer. Now, what words is Moses talking about? Moses is talking about the words that I've delivered to you from the, from the mouth of God himself. The law, the commandments, the things that I've instructed you to do. And so that's why the Jews have made a, a, a God of the law itself. They fail to recognize that it's the words that are the key. It's the words that tell us that if we'll obey, the blessing of God is always upon us. But if we disobey, then the curse is upon us. So how does Moses change this? Moses changes it to substitute faith in Jesus for the law. So he says, back to Romans chapter 10, he says in verse 6, but the righteousness which is of faith, not of the law. Now, he contrasts that with the previous verse, that the man which doeth these things, doeth the law, shall live by them, the broken promises of the law, for everybody in everybody's personal case. But the righteousness which is of faith, faith in Jesus, speaketh on this wise, say not in your heart, who shall ascend into heaven? Now, he explains, that is to bring Christ down from above, because that's where he is. Or, here's something else it doesn't say, who shall descend into the deep? That is to bring Christ up from the dead, again from the dead. But what saith it? The word is nigh thee, even in thy mouth and in thy heart. Same thing Moses said. The only substitution now between the Old Testament and the New Testament is that faith in Jesus, faith in the finished work of Jesus takes the place of the law. That is the word of faith which we preach. Now the word of faith that we preach is a summary statement, I guess we could say, for all the gospel of Jesus. The word of faith that we preach is Paul's description, one-line description of everything that Jesus has done, everything that encapsulate the law, encapsulates the law, everything that encapsulates what they were attempting to do with the law. It's just faith in Jesus. Now, folks, again, remember what the law was given for. The law was not given to bring man hope. There is no hope in the law because you can't keep it. Now, don't, don't misunderstand me. The Jews then and still do put their hope in the law. But that's not what it was given for. The law was not given man so that he could find some means of success or find some ray of hope, find some sense of here's how we can do this. The law was given for one and only one reason, and that was to show man what despair there was in him trying to make his way to God. That's it. That's the only purpose for the law. To show man, I can't do this on my own. That's all the law was ever for. And isn't that exactly what we do when we impose some kind of law on our 
relationship with God, whether it's praying enough or reading the Bible enough or doing enough good works or handing out enough tracts or whatever it is we try to impose upon ourselves, isn't that the end result of it? Is anybody ever successful in any of that stuff? No, because no matter how well you do what you attempted or set out to do, there's always going to be the devil on your shoulder saying, well, you're not doing enough. And it's only when we put ourselves under rules and regulations that we gain this despair. But if you've set aside those rules and regulations and realize that Christ made an end of the law, destroyed our relationship with any and every rule and regulation, and substituted one and only one thing for it, and that's faith in the finished work of Jesus, there's nothing to feel guilty about. Is this making any sense to anybody? That's what Paul is saying. But what saith it? The word is nigh thee, even in thy heart and in thy mouth. That is the word of faith which you preach. In other words, Paul is saying, the word of faith, what I'm preaching about what Jesus has accomplished through his death, burial, and resurrection, is the fulfillment of that which Moses said, the word is nigh thee in the Old Testament, without the keeping of the law. Then he, describe, then he explains further. He says that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in thine heart that God has raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Now what is he saying? He's saying here's how faith in the finished work of Jesus works. Now it's also important for us to realize that the Jews... Uh, the Jews have a hard time with this confession stuff. For example, the Bible says in uh, uh, the Gospels, tells us in the Gospels that there were many of the Jews, uh, meaning the Jewish leaders, there were many of the Jewish leaders and the, the, uh, even the Pharisees and so forth that believed in Jesus when they saw the, the miracles that he did. But they would not confess him because they were afraid of being thrown out of the synagogues. And it goes further to say because they sought after the approval of men more than the glory of God. So Paul knows exactly what the, the, what the problem is with the Jews. He knows what his problem was. He knew when he, heard Peter, uh, when he heard Stephen speak, standing there holding his clothes while they were stoning him and putting him to death, when he heard Peter, Peter uh, why do I keep saying Peter? Stephen. When he heard Stephen preach and say the things that he did about Jesus and about the kingdom of God, he knew that he was affected just like the others were affected. And remember what the end result of that affecting was? It says the ones that were about to stone him ran upon him and gnashed upon him with their teeth. Now, folks, what would cause somebody to move from where they are and run to where another guy is and start biting him and trying to tear their flesh off with their teeth? I mean, something has affected these people. I mean, that's assuming that's not normal activity. Uh, maybe that's a big jump, but I just don't assume that that's normal activity for most people. But that was the effect of Stephen's preaching on these people that wanted to kill him. Not just that they picked up rocks and threw, it, threw, hard, uh, you know, threw harder at him or, or threw bigger rocks or something like that. They ran on him and gnashed on him with their teeth. Well, what effect did it have on Paul? It had to affect him somehow. He heard the preaching of Jesus. Did it stop him? No, he doubled his efforts. That's when he went to the council and asked for letters to go to Damascus and put more people in prison there. People that hate the truth hate the truth. 
They hate hearing the truth, which is a lot of what's going on in our present world. The people who speak the truth in these last days are going to be hated for the truth that they speak. And it's not because people just hate us. It's not because we're such a threat to the devil that the devil's against us. It's because people hate the truth. And they don't want to hear the truth. So anybody that does speak the truth is a threat. Verse 11. For, who, for the scripture saith, whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. This word ashamed is, is interesting because it's the, it's the Greek for the Hebrew um, understanding, the Hebrew concept of ashamed, being ashamed. Ashamed, being uh, ashamed or being ashamed for the, for the Jews means to flee in fear. In other words, Paul is saying, whosoever believeth in Jesus. Remember, he's talking about faith in Jesus alone, not keeping the law, not trying to add something to it, but faith in Jesus and his, finished, his crucifixion, death, burial, and resurrection. Faith in Jesus alone enables somebody to be able to never flee in fear. In other words, it brings a boldness to your life to where you never have to run from anything that the devil ever does. Now, folks, I would suggest to you that you take this, and there's several scriptures in the Old and New Testament where it talks about this. Whosoever believeth on him shall never be ashamed. I would suggest you add this to the things that you believe God for. There have been some times where I've had my back up against the wall, and I've told the Lord, Lord, you said that whosoever believed in you would never be ashamed. You see the situation. And, man, in one case, things turned around almost overnight. So much so that it surprised me. I thought, wait a minute, is it, is it that easy? Is that the, the magic scripture that I've been missing all this time? You put your faith in boldness to overcome anything and every work of the devil. God honors that faith. For the scripture saith, here's another Old Testament reference, whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. For there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek. Now, Paul said this before. He said this in chapter 3 and verse 22. And then he was talking about all men are worthy of destruction. All men are ungodly apart from Christ, Jew and Greek alike, and worthy of the wrath of God because there's no difference between Jews and Greeks. Now he's saying, or Jews and Gentiles. Now he's using it again, but he's talking about faith in Jesus. For there is no difference between the Jew and the Gentile For the same Lord, and remember, that's the Jews' problem. You can't make the Gentiles equal with us because we've got the law of Moses. Jesus set that aside. That's the preaching of Paul, that Jesus set that aside. For there is no difference between the Jew and the Gentile. For the same Lord over all is rich unto all them that call upon him. Now, folks, there's two things that he says about the Lord. One is he's over all, and second is he's rich unto everybody that calls on him. He's rich unto all that call upon him. He's rich unto all that call upon him. Now, what does it mean to call upon him? Well, remember back in verse 9, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God has raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Notice it's be saved, not save yourself. And that comes from the Lord. That doesn't come from your action other than your obedience to believe in Jesus, have faith in Jesus. So now he goes further and says the Lord is rich unto all them that call upon him. Now in chapter 9, remember that toward the end of the chapter, he talks about how the Gentiles who weren't looking for righteousness, who weren't looking for a place with God, found it because they accepted the teaching of Jesus. They simply believed in the finished work of Jesus and they entered into something they weren't even looking for. Where the Jews have been looking for a place with God all of their lives, all throughout their existence, 
and have missed it because they reject Jesus. For that reason, in, in, at least in one sense, the Jews are in a tougher place than anybody else in the world. Paul said, writing to the church at Corinth, uh, 2 Corinthians 3, I think, he said, even to this day, I think it was true, and certainly it was true in Paul's day, I think it's even true today. He said, when the law of Moses is read, there's a veil upon their hearts. Well, there is a, a blindness that's upon everybody that's unsaved. But the Jews have something extra because of their holding on to the law of Moses and the place of prominence they give to the law of Moses instead of accepting the, the reality of what Jesus has done for us on the cross. For whosoever, verse 13, whosoever shall call upon the Lord, the name of the Lord shall be saved. Again, it's be saved, not save yourself. It's a be saved salvation, not a save yourself salvation. And where does it come? Does it come from us? No, it comes from the Lord through the name of Jesus. When he's talking about calling on the name of the Lord, he's not talking about crying out to, to the Lord. They did that under the old covenant. He's talking about calling on the name of Jesus. Faith in the name of Jesus, in other words. How then shall they call in, in him, on him in whom they've not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they've not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? Let me read down through several of these verses and I'll make some comments. And how shall they preach except they be sent as it is written? Here's Old Testament. Here's Isaiah. He brings Isaiah into the, the preaching of the gospel of Jesus. How beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, here's another quote from Isaiah. Said, for Isaiah saith, Lord, who hath believed our report? Now, if you don't know that this, that's Isaiah 53, verse 1. Paul brings into the teaching of faith in Jesus apart from the law, which was his ministry. That was his message. The law of Moses has been done away with. It's faith in Jesus and Jesus alone. And remember, Paul was an apostle to the Gentiles. Can you imagine the trouble that would have occurred if Paul was sent to the Jews? Paul's trying to get away from the Jews and go to the Gentile nations where God sends him and the Jews that are scattered in much smaller concentrations than if he'd stayed in Israel and preached in Jerusalem, stir up the trouble against him that, that's almost incomprehensible. So what does he do? He goes to the Gentiles. He preaches the law of, Mo, uh, preaches the law of Moses has been done away with to the Jews that are, that are there. To the Gentiles, he didn't say anything about the law of Moses. He just preaches that Jesus died for your sins. And was raised again from your justification. So he's bringing in Isaiah 53. Which all every Jew anywhere knows is the messianic chapter. So what does he say? He says the preaching of Jesus is the report of Isaiah. Who was wounded. Who tells about Jesus. Speaking of Jesus says he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. With his stripes we were healed. So all of these things are Old Testament quotes, Old Testament scriptures, references, pointing to Jesus. Can you see what he's doing with the Jews? He's taking scripture after scripture after scripture after scripture after scripture. And he's saying these things were all pointing to Jesus. These things all refer to Jesus. This was God's plan from the beginning. God didn't somehow just pull the rug out from under you and come, you know, go a new direction. This was his plan from the very start. We didn't know it because we made a law, we made a God out of the law. 
But God's plan was always to provide for us through faith. Now, I want to, let's put something else in context here. What place should the Jews have, have held or what place should the law have been held in the minds of the Jewish people, the Jewish nation before Jesus? As I said, most of them made a God out of the law itself. And they looked at their position and their place or what they thought their place was with God because they were the single nation, the only nation on the face of the earth that was given the, the law of Moses. God didn't give the law of Moses to any other Gentile people. He didn't give it to the Amalekites or the Philistines or any other nation or any other people. He gave it to us, and that makes us special. But when was the law given? When God brought Israel out of Egypt and delivered them with a mighty hand. He brought them across the Red Sea. They didn't have a law. When he took them to the 12 palms where they, they camped, their first place to encamp, where God brought the Moses, uh, brought the water from the rock to supply the people and their animals and everything that they needed. They stayed there for months. They didn't have a law. So it wasn't the law that brought them deliverance from Egypt. It wasn't the law that brought the water from the rock. That was where the manna started being given to them daily. It wasn't the, they didn't have a law. So it wasn't the law that brought manna. What was it then that gave them a special place with God? It wasn't the law. And that's the thing that the Jewish people have never recognized. What was it that God wanted out of Israel before they ever had a law? Which, by the way, makes the law kind of a side issue, not the main line. Paul says so. The Jews saw it as the main line, but it wasn't. They had a relationship with God through faith, the faith of Abraham, that they were supposed to emulate and imitate, not the law. Folks, whatever rules and regulations you're trying to live by don't make one bit of difference between, you know, don't make one bit of difference in your relationship with God. There's only one thing that establishes and maintains a relationship with God, and that's faith in Jesus and his finished work. So then, verse 17, so then faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word. Um, put this together with verse 16 who hath Lord who has believed our report Isaiah 53 1 who has believed our report so really what he's saying is so then faith comes by a report now hearing is not an incorrect translation but what he's saying is faith comes by the report of Jesus faith comes by the report of what Jesus has done for us faith comes by the report of whatever God has established as a part of the finished work of the Lord so then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. This word, word, the word translate, I'm sorry, the word that is translated from the Greek into the English word, W-O-R-D, is not the word logos, it's the word rhema. In other words, it means a spoken or a quickened word. So then faith comes by the report and the report by the quickening spoken word of God. That's why you have two people making a confession and the confession works for one person and the confession doesn't work for the other one. Because one is making it from their head and the other is making it from their heart. For one, the word of God, whatever scripture it is they're quoting, whatever promise they're speaking, for one, it's just the knowledge, the mental knowledge that this is what the Bible says. For other, it's a heart assurance that this is what Jesus has done. That's why meditating in the word is such a key issue. Because you can speak the word for years without ever letting it become a part of your heart. 
But remember, even in the Old Testament, David said, Lord, thy words have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. This is not a New Testament concept. This is not a new faith teacher idea. This is God's original plan. So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. But I say, have they, meaning Israel, not heard? He's going to close this up by showing the condition that Israel is in and why they're there. Should they have been there? Do they have to be there? In other words. But I say, have they not heard? Yes, verily. Then he quotes the Old Testament. Their sound went into all the earth and their words into the ends of the world. But I say, here's the second question. But I say, did not Israel know? Yeah, they knew. Their law told them. First, Moses said, I will provoke you to jealousy by them that are no people. And by a foolish nation, I will anger you. It's interesting because when we started off over in Deuteronomy chapter 30, talking about, uh, but what saith it, the righteousness of faith saith, uh, who shall go up, uh, saith not who shall go up to heaven and so forth. That's uh, uh, the quote from Deuteronomy 30, verses 11 through 14, as I read to you. The 30th chapter of Deuteronomy is about where Israel, it's a prophecy of where Israel will rebel against God and be scattered into the wind. And that's where God instructs Paul to bring an Old Testament quote from because for all of the law, for all of the blessings, for all of the good things that God did, God said time and time again, I know what you're going to do. You're going to turn away. And so what did God finally say that he would do when Israel turned away and was scattered? He said, I'll provoke you to jealousy. How is he going to provoke Israel to jealousy? How is he going to make Israel jealous? He's going to do something through another nation. But a nation that's not really a nation. A nation that's not the Philistines. It's not the Amalekites. It's not the, the, the Persians. It's not some other group. The nation he's talking about is the Gentiles. In other words, Paul is saying, this is exactly what you're concerned about and what you kick about and what you won't accept is exactly what God prophesied and promised in the Old Testament that he would do through your leader, Moses. Did not Israel know? Yeah, two reasons. First, Moses said, I will provoke you to jealousy by them that are no people and a foolish nation I will anger you. But Isaiah, here's the second proof, but Isaiah is very bold. And says, I was found of them, Gentiles, that sought me not. Remember chapter 9, the end of chapter 9? He talked about the Gentiles who weren't looking for righteousness, found it. Because they were willing to believe in Jesus. That's what he's talking about here still. Isaiah is very bold saying, I was found of them that sought me not. And I was made manifest unto them that asked not after me. In other words, Paul is saying, The problem that you're having because you refuse to submit to the righteousness of God, which is only by faith in Jesus, is the very thing that God is trying to provoke you to jealousy so that you'll believe in Jesus and come back into a relationship with him. Did it work? (laughs) Not very well. There might be still left some things to, uh, to come on that issue, though. Finally, verse 21, but to Israel, he saith, Isaiah mean, he's talking about Isaiah, but to Israel, he saith, all the day long I have stretched forth my hands unto a disobedient and gainsaying people. Paul is trying to prove from the Old Testament, this is what God planned all along. This was God's original intent. Let go of the law of Moses. Jesus has destroyed your relationship with the law of Moses. 
he's we say fulfilled it but sometimes i think that means people think that means that jesus just did everything according to the law well that's true but if that was all that jesus did then he wouldn't have had to die when it says he when it says jesus made an end of the law it really means he destroyed mankind's relationship with any and every law any and every law certainly the law of moses but every other law too and so what god, what's god doing God's reaching out to a disobedient and gainsaying people. Now, it's interesting because so many times we think of uh, uh, how important it is for us to seek God. And the Old Testament says time and time again, seek the Lord. As a matter of fact, Mo, uh, uh, what's his name? David said uh, on several occasions in the Psalms, he said, I will seek him early. I will get up and rise up before the sun and seek the Lord. I will seek him on every hand and so on and so forth. But if you think about the work of Jesus, Jesus didn't come because man sought him. Jesus came because God sought you. So certainly I'm seeking knowledge, and I trust you are as well. I'm seeking after the knowledge of God that is, that is identified and, and given to us in his word. I'm seeking a closeness and a fellowship with him that comes through prayer. I'm seeking after some of the things that will cause me to understand and, and know my heavenly father. But really everything that I've got is not because I sought him, because he sought me even the word that i seek after and read and study and try to put in my heart that didn't come because i sought it it came because god gave it even the relationship and the fellowship that i gained through prayer is not because i sought after something even though i'm applying myself in every way that i know to do it came because god sought man and he made a means for us to fellowship with him through prayer that's what this is talking about. That's what Paul is trying to identify. That Isaiah is saying, I, God, sought after a disobedient, gainsaying people. He still is. And he always will. Amen? Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you for the privilege that we have just to simply trust in you, Lord Jesus, and your finished work. Forgive us, Lord, when we try to do something on our own to supersede or even to add to what you've already done. Help us, Lord, to cease from our own works in an attempt to gain something more with you. For we recognize that we cannot grow in righteousness. Righteousness is established once and for all by the finished work of Jesus through our faith in that work being accomplished. Father, we desire to grow in grace. We desire to grow in the knowledge of the word. We desire to grow in closeness with you through our prayer lives and to develop a prayer life that you would be proud of us having because you love us. But help us to realize, Lord, we're righteous because of us. Simply, we chose to believe in Jesus. Thank you, Father, that all of your blessings and all your promises are ours. Everything that is enwrapped and included in what Jesus accomplished is ours because of simple faith in his name. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for being with us.